0: This morning we're in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Before we move into this, I I just want to make clear kind of where John has been going, how he's been setting this up. So if we look just immediately prior to this, John, in essence, told us that our ability to recognize that we are saved, our ability to recognize that you are one with God, that God has forgiven you, your ability to abide, kind of stay and rest in Him, centers on your ability to hear from the Holy Spirit. So in essence, it's this. If you don't hear from the Holy Spirit, you're gonna go go through life wondering, am I really saved, does he really love me, am I really forgiven? It's gonna be this cycle when you're doing the right thing, you're hanging out with the right friends, you're attending church, you're reading your Bible, or whatever it is, you're gonna feel closer to God. When those things begin to fall away, you're gonna feel further away from God. And what he's telling us in this, it's not all the doing of stuff that lets us know whether or not we belong to God, It's this ongoing, continual testimony of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And that's why in verse 24 he said, And by this we know that he abides in us. How? It is by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Christian learns from God's Word and has God's Word applied to their hearts by the power of the agency of the Holy Spirit. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit as Christians. So this is why he comes out of this and he says, Hold on a second. Don't trust your gut. Don't trust the the feeling in your stomach that comes from that burrito at lunchtime. You need to rely on the Holy Spirit. So he comes out of that, that, and in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. There's a shocking lack of discernment amongst most Christians. We hear it. It sounds good to us. We trust the person who said it to us. And we say, well, this must be right. And so this is largely the way that we engage, largely the way that we head about and and engage in life. I'm gonna tell you this, if you hear me say something, and you know it to be false, like stand up and be like, hey, that's not right. That's not right, that's not true. That doesn't find truth in God's word. You're just saying something, you hapless nitwit, shut your face and sit down, right? This happened like three weeks ago. None of you saw them because we had them escorted out the back. No, it didn't, but maybe it should. (laughs) Let me read one through six, then we'll walk through. He starts off, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He summarily describes it this way. He says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And then look at this dependence again. By this we know the spirit of truth in the spirit of error. John opens up, and he has this amazing uh, word to us. Be skeptical. Be skeptical. Be slow to believe everything you hear. I mean, look what he says there. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. In essence, John comes to us, he says, everything you think, feel, or believe, don't necessarily take it in. Everything you, you think or hear or feel don't necessarily just move to co-opt and bring this in to be a part of your life. Man, we have some dearly misguided people in our families and in our community, communities spreading, uh, for lack of a better word, craziness, right? Like you have these people. Some of you, it's your mom. Like she calls you and she's like, hey look, I was watching Osteen on TV the other day and he said if I did these five things, my bank account's just gonna be brimming with money. And you're like, mom, turn it off. Like stop watching that. And she's gonna say, no, 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 you don't understand. I saw on Facebook the other day, somebody posted and they said if I like, share, and and, and then tag 50 of my friends, these things are gonna happen. God is gonna bless me from heaven. All these amazing things are gonna happen. And you're like, mom, get off Facebook. Quit believing your idiot friends. Like get, find a new book club. Like find a new group to hang out with. And so we know in some sense that those things we think, those things we hear, and those things we feel, man, they have to be tested. Don't believe everything you hear. And this is what we do. We tend to assign truth based on how well we know someone. So if we know someone well, we respect them. They come into our lives and they say something like, oh man, I don't know how I feel about that, but because I have this relationship with this person, I'm more apt to believe them. Christian, be skeptical. Be skeptical. In essence, your position, the posture when you come into church and you sit here and you open and you're reading a book should be one of skepticism. Now, notice there's a difference between skepticism and doubt, right? And so it's not like you're sitting there and you're like, oh, he's just a liar. Like, I'm just waiting for Oh, no, lying again. Like, every time his lips move, he's a liar. I'm not a snake oil salesman, right? And so there's a difference between doubt and skepticism. Skepticism looks at this and says, could this be true? And reserves judgment on it. And so we recognize there are so many things we're tempted to believe. And this is what happens. Somebody comes into your life and they're going to say, God told me to do thus and so. For the Christian is the trump card, right? Like we feel that there's no ability to speak back to somebody when they say, God told me to do this. God told me to to break up with you. God told me to marry you. God told me to quit this job. God told me to move. God told me to leave this church. There is seemingly no end to the things that we ascribe that God has told us to do. understandably there are things that God communicates to us things that he is actually saying do this don't do this and listen to this if you are tempted to believe God is telling you to do something that you know to be sin you're wrong do you understand this if you're tempted to believe that God is telling you to do something that you know to be sin or you discover a sin in God's Word you are wrong that burrito might have been delicious but the after-effect is leading you astray Right. Just because someone comes up and tells you, God has told me to do thus and so, or God has told you to do thus and so, you need to test this. You need to to figure out, is this true? Our lives are not a choose-your-own-adventure of discovering anything we want to do and then slapping the sticker on it saying, God told me to do this. Many of us, many of us, If we were to stand before God and we're to run through this list of all the things in our lives we have ascribed him having told us to do, he would say, you gotta be kidding me. I'm I'm not anywhere in that decision. You quit that job. You married that lunatic. You broke up uh, with this person. You divorced your wife. You divorced your husband. You chose not to have any more kids. You chose to have more kids. And you said, because God told you to do it. Never did you consult me. Never did you hear from me. Can I tell you this as Christians we need to be incredibly slow to co-opt and bring in the authority of God in our decisions. Some of us we just we make some wise decisions and that's okay. But don't try and baptize your wise decisions by saying God told me to do this. Can you tell this is a pet peeve? I don't think you can. Let's keep going. It says, test every spirit. It says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, giving us the understanding that there are certain inclinations, there are certain things we think, certain things we hear, and certain things we feel that, quite simply put, are not from God. And these may be good things. These may be good things. But could it be, perhaps, that God is calling some of us to move in line to directly receive suffering? Have you noticed that as a people, we tend to choose those things that bring us the most pleasure? We tend to choose those things that bring us the most joy. We tend to choose those things that please us most readily and quickly, right? Could it be, if we were hearing from the Spirit of God, that he would call us into a lifestyle, that he would call us into a location that wouldn't be good, recognized as being good by our family, It wouldn't be pleasing to us immediately, and it might call some of us into decided suffering. This is why he says, don't believe every spirit you hear. Test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. Why? Because he says many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, within John's purview and the direction that he sees this, what he's talking about is they had people that were joining them each and every week at church. And these people that were joining them each and every week in church, man, they have packed up and they have moved. And so you have the church over here and they're existing and they're worshiping God. And then you have all those who have moved and they've set up in the same community just down the street and they're here. And this is how John describes them. These guys are false prophets. You know what a prophet does? A prophet communicates and their communication, they say, comes from God. So this is what John says. We need to test these spirits because we know these folks, they used to be over there with us, but now they've set up over here and they're communicating back to us. And they're saying, God wants you to do this. God wants you to understand him this way. God wants you to do this. And and all these messages are coming back to the church and John's saying, don't be believing them consistently, every day, every moment. Every time you hear somebody speak back into you, ask yourself this question, is that from God, or is that from somewhere else? Test the spirits, because we recognize many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, today in our time, we find the ability to receive bad information at an all-time high. You can see it on social media, you can hear it on the radio, you can watch it on television. Just because, listen to this, just because someone is famous, and their messages are everywhere, doesn't mean they're right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just because somebody is famous and their messages are everywhere doesn't mean they are right. got to be discerning. We have to test the spirits. We have to test the messages that we hear. Now, John gives them one test, and one test in particular, and it seems that in reading the the, the entirety of John and really setting the history of this, it seems that he is addressing one specific issue issue, present and devastating in his day. Namely, this group taught that that Jesus wasn't really uh, in the flesh, that he was something different, that to understand who Jesus is, is is something that the church was getting wrong and this heretical group, this, this group of heretics was getting right, was getting true. So this is what he says, by this you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Conversely, he says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, on the one hand, we recognize that if somebody comes up to you and they say, Hey, you need to understand this, Jesus is not God, we go, BAM, heretic, right? This is the process we get in. We know that what they say is not true. So, if someone comes up to you and says, Look, I have this wonderful plan for your life, but first you need to understand this Jesus is not God, he didn't come in the flesh. Show of hands, all those who would say, You're a liar you should all have your hand in the air, like both of them, right? And so we know in some sense that this person is not telling us truth because we know Jesus did in fact come in the flesh. We know that Jesus is in fact from God. But we also recognize there are those in our day, as in John's day, that would come, to, come up to us and if you say, hold on, I'm just not sure if you're telling me the truth, would you say that Jesus has come in the flesh and that he's from God? And they would say, yes, I believe that. I'll, I'll agree to that. And so we would find certain, uh, certain Mormons and certain Jehovah's Witnesses and certain other cults that, that in some way they would say, this is true, I can believe that, I can say that. So we recognize that, that this is not the only test we apply to discover whether or not the Spirit is from God or the Spirit is from somewhere else. Interestingly, you'll notice in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark one twenty four and in 3.11. Listen to this testimony. And it's not from someone we would be readily understanding that we should trust. Jesus, Jesus casts out a demon in Mark one twenty four and 3.11. And listen to this response. The demon cries out and says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And look what he says. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How many of us want to line up to hear a testimony from a demon? How many of us want to line up and receive kind of what we should do and how our lives should progress in the testimony of a demon? And again in 3.11, we hear these words. He says, and when the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And so we recognize that this and this alone is not all that John is pointing to. It's not all that John is pointing to. Let me tell you something. Jesus, in speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit, said these words in John 16. In John 16, Jesus is preparing the disciples for what it's going to be like to live without him. And so speaking of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, he said this, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. If someone comes up to you and they present An incredibly convincing testimony on what you need to do and on what you need to know and how you need to live. And what they say doesn't find parity. You cannot readily find it. You cannot see it in God's Word, which is what Jesus declares to us, what he has given to us. Then know this. It is not from the Holy Spirit. It's from somewhere else. The Holy Spirit longs to glorify God in Jesus, the Holy Spirit's ministry is in taking what Jesus has said to us and applying it to our lives. This is what he says in there. He will glorify me. Why? Because he's going to take what is mine and declare it to you. So we recognize if we hear something that doesn't accord with scripture, it's false. It's not true. We need to be those who are reading God's word and then being skeptical of those things we hear. And some of us will will recognize that there are things in our life that we believe and believe strongly. And what we're gonna find is they they are from the world and not from God. They are from the world and not from God. They may be good, they may be wise, they may be true, but some of us will find that those things are from the world and not from God. Why? because you'll recognize certain freedoms in Scripture. You're seeking to live a legalistic life. You're seeking to, 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 to let God's love be most readily visited upon you by the rigorous keeping of rules, by not doing this and by doing that. And then you read God's word and you find that you are loved, that you are adored, that you are set free. Some of us, We'll find incredible freedom in reading God's word and abiding by what it says, not what we presumed it said, what we presumed that we were walking in. He says, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It's from God. But continuing, we know that there is more to it than this. John continues, and he says that we need to understand that we are sinful. You recognize that over the course of, of John's short letter here, He's been communicating to us certain things we had to know. Back in chapter one and verse eight, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Recognize that each and every one of us have sinned, right? Each and every one of us have sinned. Each and every one of us has found ourselves deeply in need of the forgiveness only ever offered us from Jesus. To so recognize that, that any spirit, any communication that comes into you that tells you you haven't sinned, that sin is not real, sin is illusory, this is a lie straight from the pit of hell. This is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Recognize even more that, say, say they, they proclaim that sin is real, but there are other ways to be forgiven. You just engage in righteous living. You just do the right thing. You do enough good things. You give enough money to the poor. You you serve in enough soup kitchens that God will look at this and you say, you know what, Andy's a pretty solid guy. He, He spends the weekends serving in soup kitchens. He does this over there. And so he just gets a pass. He gets a pass. He didn't believe in Jesus, but he gets a pass because he's such a good, amazing, and solid guy. No. The only way to be forgiven is to put our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ in his atoning work. John wrote us back in chapter two and said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice of our sins. Listen to this. Not only ours, but also those of the whole world. So we recognize the goodness, the mercy of our God is visited not just upon us, but it is also visited upon those of the whole world. All those who put their full faith, confidence, and trust in Jesus Christ can be forgiven their sins. Amen? Look what he goes on to say. Somebody comes up to you and says, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter if you engage in Uh, work for the kingdom. It's really just a matter of saying you can believe, you confess, and then you just live the rest of your life however you want to. That Christian, for you, there is no responsibility to engage. That for you, there is no responsibility to serve. That for you, there's no responsibility to do anything outside of sitting on your backside at church on a Sunday morning, and that only two or three times a year. Recognize that's false. Man, you've been sold a false bag of goods. You have been lied to. I don't know how else to tell you this. You have been seriously misled. John told us in chapter three and verse 16, he said, by this we know love, In essence, we don't understand or have any category of love, but we recognize love in that Jesus laid down his life for us, that he suffered and died for us, and that having beheld this love, having received this love, we are translated into action. So he says in verse 18 of the same chapter, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Christianity is not some philosophy that we adopt, and then we sit in circles and say, let us talk about all the wonderful ways that God's love might be visited upon the poor. And then the next week we get back together and say, last week we talked about five ways that the love of God might be visited upon the poor. And some hapless nitwit newly wanders into the group and they say, hold on, do we ever minister to the poor? And you say, no, 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 we are primarily a group that centers around the discussion of what minister to the poor might look like in a hypothetical situation and not our town, not our locus. Do you see how stupid that is? Do you see how self-deceived that is? Christianity is not primarily just about life transformation, about getting saved and and giving our heart to Jesus and, and spending eternity with him. This is the way the Bible figures this. You're either a slave to sin and death or you're a slave to God and righteousness. So whenever we move from being a slave to sin and death and we move in and he has redeemed us and he has laid claim to our lives, then we are those who faithfully serve him. We've seen his love. We've received his love. And we live our lives faithfully, extending his love to everybody we encounter, amen? We're not primarily a group that sits around and talks about what it would be like someday if God would raise up somebody and send them to a foreign country, not us, amen? But we are those who are engaged in giving ourselves fully to the task before us. We are those who are testing those things people say to us that drive greater pleasure for ourselves and saying no to that and saying yes to the service of Jesus. Some of us have believed the spirits that come our way that bring us the most pleasure, the most joy, and the most ease. Man, this is a terrific sadness for the Western church. That we are hungry for those things that are easy. And all those things that smack of suffering and sacrifice, we say, that's crazy. Do you know how risky that would be if I were to do that? Do you know the the danger I'd put my family in to live in this area? Do you know the danger I would expose myself to? Do you know that if you give money to a poor person, they don't spend it very well? Do you know that? Do you know they're just going to go buy drugs with that money? Do you understand that? I mean, this is the way we talk to ourselves, is it not? We want nice, safe neighborhoods. We want nice, safe kids. We want a nice, safe, cozy life. And so we tend to run through the screen all those things that don't fit and bring those things to bear on our lives. We say, I'm gonna be super skeptical of that over there and just receive me some more love, adoration, money, and ease over here because that's what I want. Be skeptical, be skeptical about what the Bible is skeptical about. Be risky about what the Bible risks. Look at this. He comes into verse 4, and he he turns around. He knows that what he said has been hard to hear. He knows it's been hard to hear. They want to believe those things that are easy. They want to push off those things that are hard. So he comes into them, and he says, Little children, you have overcome them. In essence, this is the picture he gives to them. He doesn't look at them and say, Sue, Bobby, Billy. He comes to them, and he says, You, church, all of you together, you have overcome them. All these false messages have been communicated back into your church, and you guys, coming together, have overcome them. You guys, coming together, have overcome them. We recognize that any of us standing alone is not nearly as strong as all of us standing together. You understand what I'm saying? We desperately need each other. We desperately need each other. It's the power of God working in all of us at the same time that is enabling us to overcome them. It is the power of God working in all of us together that enables us to stand against the slings and arrows of the enemy. It's not us rising up as kind of this this lone wolf and going out on our own that we can stand and say, everybody look at me, look how amazing I am. It is all of us together saying, man, I'm broken and wounded and in desperate need of help. And then our brother or sister comes along and says, I'm broken or wounded and in desperate need of help. And all of us together, arm in arm, hand in hand, receive through us the power of the Spirit. And all of us together have the ability, the power to overcome them. Why? Because all of us together gives a beautiful picture of what it is to be redeemed in a community. little children, you are from God, you have overcome them. Now let me offer a word of corrective here. I think the majority of times I've ever heard anybody teach on this passage or just speak on it or use it as a memory verse or a life verse or whatever you wanna call it, it's always about them, right? Man, I have overcome. I think there are songs about that. You're an overcomer. Now look at this. Why? You are a vessel, but he is greater. He comes into you, he comes into us, he is greater than he who is in the world. Christian, if you try and stand alone, if you try and stand in your own power, you may be successful for a season, but you will ultimately fail miserably. This is what he says. Together, we can overcome. Why? Because collectively and individually, we recognize the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Our only ability to stand in the fight. Recognize this. Christianity is absolutely a spiritual battle. And our only ability to withstand, to stay steady in the midst of this, is being so incredibly dependent upon God's Holy Spirit. There's no place in Christianity for haughtiness. Being puffed up. Being prideful. Being arrogant. Christianity It's a relationship with incredibly broken, devastated, and vulnerable people in a high and exalted God. The role we get to play in Christianity is being needy and broken and humble. How many needy, broken, and humble people do you know that are just beaming with pride? They see their needs. They ask many of us to meet them. They see their needs and they cry out to God to be near to them. And this is for the picture that he has for us all. That we would all come together, not seeking to mask my weakness, not seeking to to hide what that is, but freely showing it. Why? Because this is the true testimony of who I am before a holy God. And unless I live and communicate a true testimony of who I am before a holy God, I am limiting the ability of the Holy Spirit to work in me. Because I'm seeking to live and prop myself up on what others think of me instead of who I really am before God. There's a real heart check for many of us in this. Many of us are incredibly enamored with what other people think we are, with who other people think we are. Can I tell you this? God sees your heart. He sees your woundedness. He sees your pride. He sees your sin. And his desire for you is that you would walk up out of that and that you would humbly declare, I am broken and in need, and if this is your posture before him, then he can lead you through a dependency upon him and those spirit-filled people in your life. He can lead you to overcome the situation that's facing you. Why? Because you're finding your identity, your rest, your truth in him. Not in your circumstance and not in who people are see you as. So he says, little children, you're from God, you have overcome them. Now, in five and six, he splits everybody in the world into one of two camps. And he says, we've got the world over here, and we've got the church over here. Everybody in this room and everybody you'll ever meet is in one of these two camps. Not saying that they're members of Ridgecrest, but that they are of the church of God, or they're in the world. So he looks at the world and he says, they are from the world, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Valerie and I used to have a friend named James, and James was from Cork, he's from Cork, Ireland, and he had the thickest accent of anyone that I've ever heard in my entire life. And every time James would speak, and he was very intense, he'd kinda get in your face and talk, he was was a tall guy, and I would just kinda nod and smile and chuckle. One, because I found his accent comical, I did. I thought, you're the largest leprechaun I've ever seen in my entire life. Where's your pot of gold? I must find it. And two, he was just, just funny. He was a fun guy to be around. But I never had a clue what James was saying. And uh, I just, I mean, there's no telling the things. He's disappointed I never showed up to because I simply said, yeah, absolutely, awesome. Totally, see you there. What did he say? I have no idea. I couldn't. i i i And so one night, uh, speaking through a translator, James had invited us to go out with him and so we showed up to this deal and there happened to be this girl from Cork as well there and, and the most amazing thing happened James walked over to her and she began to speak and James began to speak and none of us had any clue what they were saying but they both understood exactly what the other person was saying right? and so they're talking about all these things and you already go down and I mean it was, it was insane not a clue what they were saying but apparently people from Cork understand other people from Cork the world works the same way the world works the same way He says they are from the world. They find their cultural cultural identity in the world. They speak from the world. Everything about their worldview is coming from this idea, being primarily found in who they are as citizens of the world. Increasingly, Christian, we will not understand how people in the world make decisions. This week, a company in Australia uh, decided that it would be a novel thing to take frozen embryo and make them into wearable jewelry. Frozen embryo and, and to make them into wearable jewelry. And so we look at this and we say, that's, that's bewildering. I don't understand that. And that's wrong because of what my understanding of what life is and, and how God has created life. And this place. On the on, on their message board said, we only want people to engage in gracious, loving, and kind testimony. We understand this difficulty. But we hear that, and we read that, and we say, like, I don't have a category for understanding how this works, and, nor do I have a category of understanding the process that you had head down to say, yeah, let's make this stuff into jewelry. Let's make these lives into wearable jewelry. They're from the world. They speak from the world. And the world listens to them. And increasingly we find ourselves on the outside saying, I just don't understand this. I don't know how to operate with this. So then he turns to the church and he comes over and he says, we are from God. We are from God. Now understand this. We were formerly in the world, Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God's love found us, that it rescued, that it redeemed us, that pulled us out of the world, and it transferred us into the kingdom of his glorious life. This is where we've been taken from, and this is where we've been delivered to. God's gracious love has found us, it has redeemed us, it has rescued us. It says we are from God, and then he says whoever knows God listens to us. Christian you should be able to find a terrific amount of commonality with other Christians irrespective of race, ethnicity, job history, socioeconomic status or upbringing. You should be able to sit and engage with another Christian. Why? Because you are from God and those who are from God speak as if they're from God. But he has this devastating piece here at the end. This seemingly devastating piece he says whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Many of us, we have lost friends, coworkers, sibling spouses, man, just people we care for deeply. And you've shared the gospel with them over many years, many days. And you're just like, I, like how do you not get this? Like, it's right here. It's, it's clear as day. How do you not see this in me? And so there's this frustration, perhaps, that wells up in us. Why can they not hear this? Why are they not responding to this? But within the words of John, we recognize that it is not our job. It is not within our ability to save those around us. Are we called faithfully to communicate the saving truth of the gospel to them? Absolutely. Are we called faithfully to live out the gospel in front of them? Absolutely. Are we called to suffer their smears, their arrogance, their disbelief, and to do so patiently and graciously? Absolutely. We are dependent, each and every one of us, upon the Spirit of God to move in the heart of the unbeliever And what we are called to do, Christian, what you are called to do, is to be faithful in this task. They don't listen to us, but they will respond to the Spirit of God. And so our prayer has to be, not that our words would convince them, not that our lifestyle would compel them, but that the Spirit of God would show them the truth and called them into confession, repentance, and ultimately, the glorification of God. That they would glory in God. This is why John finishes and he says, by this we know that there's a spirit of truth and a spirit of error. God calls us to walk in full dependence upon the spirit. Full dependence upon the spirit, as he wrote in 324, shows us that we are of God and full dependence upon the Spirit out through the course of the Christian's life shows us what's true, shows us what's false, and is the only hope for us and all those we encounter. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, we come to you recognizing that many of us have lost friends and family members and We yearn for them to come to know you, to be saved. And so, Father, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in their hearts and in their lives. And God, I pray for those of us in here who, man, we have been following you, but we have been been believing and living our lives in accordance with some false spirit. We've not been walking in the reality and the truth of what your word says, but in the opinions of those we hear from. God, would you allow us to walk in the realization of the truth and the freedom of your Holy Spirit? Father, we thank you for your spirit, for the abiding testimony that it is for us in our lives, and for the way that we're able to determine truth from error as we find ourselves being dependent upon your spirit. So Father, in these next moments, as we unite our hearts in song, I pray that your spirit would just be continuing to communicate truth to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.